Thanks for joining us. Coming up tonight, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank files for bankruptcy in the wake of the bank's collapse. Banks' emergency borrowing from the Fed hits a new record high as they try to shore up their liquidity. Should you be worried? In the style of Jupiter, French President Emmanuel Macron bypasses parliament to raise his nation's retirement age, causing millions to protest and putting his own career at risk. Another social media company restores Donald Trump's account in the run-up to the 2024 election. New censorship allegations. Recently released Twitter files show an organization pushed to censor stories about COVID and vaccines, even though they knew the stories were true. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. The parent company of the failed Silicon Valley Bank is seeking Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. SVB Financial Group's filing is no surprise in light of its subsidiaries collapse, though its venture capital and broker-dealer businesses are still operational. They're not part of the filing. SVB Capital and SVB Securities are still prized assets, according to the company's chief restructuring officer. Overall, SVB Financial Group says it has $3.3 billion in unsecured debt that could get wiped out in bankruptcy. The proceedings could eliminate even more money in stock. Trading of its shares stopped on Thursday. Shares of First Republic Bank plunged again today, despite getting $30 billion yesterday from big banks. Investment bank Jefferies says First Republic is likely looking to sell, and the big banks who came to the rescue yesterday are its most likely suitors. Banking stops, stocks tumbled overall. On Wall Street, indexes closed lower today, with the Dow and the Nasdaq posting weekly declines. The Dow fell 385 points, or 1.2%. S&P lost 44 points, or 1.1%. And the Nasdaq dropped 87 points, or 0.7%. U.S. banks have borrowed over $150 billion in emergency loans from the Fed. This amid turmoil in the banking sector. The amount borrowed was using the Fed's discount window. The discount window allows banks to borrow money against their assets to deal with shortages of liquidity. For example, banks can pledge their long-term treasuries in exchange for cash. The amount borrowed this past week was the largest amount since the 2008 financial crisis. Banks also tapped into the, the Fed's Bank Term Funding Program, or BTFP. About $12 billion were borrowed from this program. BTFP is the Fed's new loan program launched last Sunday. It's to give support to banks that need quick cash. The Fed's balance sheet increased by nearly $300 billion. The borrowing may indicate that banks are trying to protect themselves from customers pulling out deposits in light of recent events. And joining me is Peter Earle, economist with AIER. So a lot happened in the past week. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet increased by over $100 billion. Uh, there's some key terms here. Uh, let's start with the discount window. For any, any of our viewers that's not on the same page, maybe just tell us what is the discount window to start off. So the, the Fed's discount window is uh, a lending program, which is usually viewed as an emergency lending program. Um, it tends to get a lot of use uh, during times of crises. And for that reason, there's often a stigma associated with using it. Um, but this week, uh, loans extended at the discount window reached $153 billion. And that's pretty noteworthy because the previous record was for about $110 billion at the peak of the 2005 financial crisis. Um, so I, I think it's safe to say that the stigma 
associated with borrowing at the discount window is, uh, is, is, is evaporating. There's not a lot of stigma, at least right now. So that raises the question, do we know which banks are tapping into the discount window? Right. So the built into the uh, discount window is the um, is the guarantee that uh, the public will not be made aware of uh, banks which are borrowing from the discount discount window for about two years. So um, I noted in an article I wrote uh, a few months ago that there was a rise in borrowing at the discount window uh, through uh, uh, September, October, November, December of 2022, but that it would be at least, you know, early 2024 before we would know through public disclosures what the identity of those banks and other institutions were. Right, I see. Okay. What about uh, the banks tapping into the discount window? You know, does this tell us anything about the state of the banking system? Well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, first of all, we know that U.S. banks are now sitting on about $620 billion in unrealized losses. Um, so it means that there is some strain out there. Most banks are not as bad off as Signature or Silicon Valley Bankware, but if there's strain out there, um, they're definitely going to be using those these sorts of facilities. Um, to what extent, uh, you know, uh, their, their businesses are impaired. Uh, I don't think it's very, it, it, it's it's substantial. I think that Signature and, and Silicon Valley Bank were sort of unique situations. Um, but I also think that if there's no stigma to go into the discount window, even some banks which don't have a problem will identify a good deal and a good you know reason for lending and a good uh, uh, rate at which they can lend. So there are probably a lot of firms which are accessing that liquidity that don't even need it. I don't think that there's a lot of trouble ahead, but the thing is, the Fed has moved rates so much in the last, you know, year now uh, that there's a lot of uh, sort of random and unintended consequences uh, showing up in the banking system and in the financial markets and in the economy. So uh, I think we're we're vulnerable now to uh, surprises. So in light of everything that's happened in this past week, um, let me let me ask you a forward-looking question. What, what are you paying close attention to uh, on the horizon? Well, I'll tell you. So the Fed's job has become a lot more complicated for a couple of reasons, right? I mean, they 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 tried to fight inflation by raising rates, and now the recent inflation numbers show that this inflation seems to be slowing down. In some cases, prices are now rising again. Um, you know, in, in, after 2008, you could argue that the Fed inherited a mandate to ensure financial stability, and you could say, to some extent, SVB and Signature Bank are sort of the canaries in the coal mine. So I think right now, what what what's going to be happening is we're going to see whether the Fed chooses raising rates and fighting inflation or financial stability as its uh, as its sort of main priority. And whichever one it sort of lets become the secondary priority, you know, I'll be watching those to see if things worsen. Um, this is this is a problem of the Fed's own making, in part because they've had uh, this sort of mission creep where they've inherited mandate over mandate over the last hundred years. All right. Thank you so much today, Peter. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for having me. The U.S. government is taking extraordinary measures to shield the depositors from losses at Silicon Valley Bank. That's going to be for insured and uninsured deposits. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen confirmed that foreign clients will also be protected. Uninsured investors will be made whole in that bank, and I suppose that could include foreign, inv- foreign depositors but I don't believe there's any legal basis to discriminate among uninsured. I get it, but I, I'm just. 
SVB reportedly did business with many Chinese funds and startups before its collapse, including companies with ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Chinese biotech companies alone have more than $240 million deposited in the bank. Some Republicans have expressed concern about handing payouts to Chinese investors and companies. In a letter to Yellen, Senator Marco Rubio said that hostile foreign adversaries must not benefit from SVB's collapse. It's estimated that the bank had $13.9 billion of uninsured foreign deposits. SVB first dipped its toe in the Chinese market in 1999. It established a Beijing office to offer advisory services and client support. In the aftermath of the collapse, Chinese investors, businesses and regulators hope to mitigate the damage. French President Emmanuel Macron has made a controversial decision to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64, risking his own career. He did it by bypassing parliament using special constitutional powers, as led to violent protests across the country. Millions of people took to the streets. Mountains of trash lit on fire. Protesters even threatened Macron's home. There has been violent confrontations with police as well, who fired tear gas into the angry crowds. Definitely not a pretty sight. Protesters are angry because they don't want to be forced to work two extra years before they can retire. They also don't like how President Macron bypassed a vote from parliament, which likely would not have been in favor of the change. Here's some reactions from a protester. These are our lives. It's not the minority who are super privileged. They don't even need a pension. It's really a minority. They have assets. They have huge incomes. They're not going to decide on our lives. We're the ones who work two more years or not. We're the ones dying at work. We're the ones dying unemployed. So at the end of the day, it's up to us to decide. We will continue and we will decide and we will impose at the end of the day our needs and our demands. President Macron says raising the retirement age is necessary because France's pension system is about to collapse. The number of retirees is growing and the number of workers is shrinking. And of course, the pension system is funded by taxing workers. But actually, pension systems all over the world, including in the U.S., are all under threat of collapse. For this, we spoke to economist Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff on on the topic of pension reform. He has advised major groups like the IMF, World Bank, and numerous governments as well, including the U.S., China, Russia, Bulgaria, and others. Kotlikoff takes a very strong position. He says pension systems are basically Ponzi schemes. A uh, Ponzi scheme where we take from the young and give to the old and then take from the next to the young and give to that to the next to the old. And when the number of old goes up, relative to the number of young, and uh, the young are less productive and the old are living longer, it's a, you know, we're talking about insolvency. Kotlikoff says Macron is just trying to tweak a failing system. He's far from fixing it. Kotlikoff says the only way to really fix the failing system is to start over from scratch. He says world governments should freeze their pension structures and pay off everything that's owed. That sets into place a new fully funded system where everybody contributes to their own account. The contributions are divided between couples, spouses. The government makes uh, matching contributions on behalf of the poor, the unemployed, and the uh, disabled. So it's highly progressive. But we also have all the investments, all the all the contributions collectively invested in the global uh, financial market. So everybody gets the same rate of return. And then the government would give a guarantee of a zero real return on the global portfolio 
And then the assets at, at retirement age would be uh, paid back to you in the, full, in the form of inflation-indexed uh, pensions. Right now, Macron's government is at risk of being overthrown. He faces a no-confidence vote, which is when the French parliament will vote that they have no confidence in his leadership and want him gone. We'll keep you updated on the story. The U.S. could be moving toward a ban on gas stoves. An independent government agency made an official request for information on the stove's health hazards. NTD's Sean Marshall has more. The Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC, has made a formal request for information about the possible health hazards of gas-powered stoves. This signals that the United States may be moving toward a ban on gas stoves. However, the agency's request reads, This request for information does not constitute or propose regulatory action, but rather is intended to inform the commission and the public. The CPSC is an independent government agency. The agency's request comes just two months after its commissioner suggested that a gas stove ban could be likely to happen soon. Many Republican lawmakers didn't like the idea. Some sent a letter to the CPSC writing, Gas stoves tend to result in lower utility bills than their electric counterparts. Gas stoves are also generally more durable, with less parts being susceptible to breakages or other defects. A ban on these stoves would therefore likely result in higher utility bills, disproportionately affecting low-income populations. The Biden administration previously said the CPSC wouldn't ban the appliances. The president does not support uh, banning gas stoves, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is independent, uh, is not banning gas stoves. I just want to be very clear on that. On that. However, Fox News later published this memo in which the CPSC commissioner writes, the need for gas stove regulation has reached a boiling point. CPSC has the responsibility to ban consumer products that emit hazardous substances, particularly when those emissions harm children. However, other agency members later walked the comments back, saying no ban is being planned. But the CPSC isn't the only Biden administration agency that has its sight on gas stoves. In February, the Department of Energy proposed a rule that could outlaw a sizable percentage of gas stoves. The city of Berkeley in California has also already banned gas stoves. Other cities like New York have also talked about the idea. And YouTube restored former President Donald Trump's channel today. The platform suspended it more than two years ago after the January 6th U.S. Capitol breach. YouTube said at the time a video on Trump's channel had violated its policy against inciting violence. The account's restoration comes after Trump announced last fall he would run for president again in 2024. YouTube says it evaluated the continued risk of real-world violence while balancing the chance for voters to hear equally from major candidates. A number of users immediately began posting welcome back comments under old videos. Trump's account has more than 2.5 million subscribers. In recent months, both Twitter and Facebook parent company Meta have restored Trump's accounts, although he has yet to resume posting on those platforms. New documents show the government allegedly worked with Stanford University to suppress information about COVID-19 and vaccines. The revelation comes in the latest installment of the so-called Twitter files today. Stanford University's webpage states that its Virility Project, or VP, aims at understanding disinformation dynamics specific to the COVID-19 crisis. 
Journalist Matt Taibbi released a new installment of the Twitter files on Friday morning titled Stanford, The Virality Project and the Censorship of True Stories. Emails and other documents appear to show that the Virality Project knowingly targeted true material and legitimate political opinion, while often being factually wrong itself. VP seems to have reviewed content for Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and other platforms. The project allegedly informed Twitter that, regarding the vaccines, there was true content which might promote vaccine hesitancy, including stories of true vaccine side effects. VP apparently said such content should qualify under Twitter's censorship of COVID-19 posts. Taibbi also wrote that VP warned against people just asking questions, implying it was a tactic commonly used by spreaders of misinformation. And that apparently, even in its final report, VP claimed it was misinformation to suggest the vaccine does not prevent transmission or that governments are planning to introduce vaccine passports. Both things turned out to be true. The project was apparently working together and coordinating its actions with several government agencies, such as the CDC, the Department of Homeland Security, and others. NTD reached out to Stanford University, the CDC, and Homeland Security for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Now, remember Google Glass? Ten years ago, Google launched its augmented reality eyewear. The product, though, only lasted a couple of years because it was so expensive and had a clunky design. But then in 2017, Google tried again, this time marketing the tech for industrial uses in sectors like manufacturing and logistics. The $1,000 product failed yet again, and the company announced it's finally pulling the plug. The idea of augmented reality, or AR, though, isn't dead. Google has said it's testing other AR glasses. Apple, as well, is testing. New Zealand says it will ban TikTok on devices with access to its government network. It's the latest country to limit the use of the app on government-related devices. The ban is over cybersecurity concerns, in particular that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, could give user data to the Chinese Communist Party. New Zealand's TikTok ban will go into effect by the end of March. A TikTok spokesperson told us the company is disappointed in the decision. Taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, the FCC cracking down on spam text messages with new rules for telecom companies. Another drug maker drastically cutting its price for insulin. By how much? That and more coming up on NTD Business. And welcome back. Say goodbye to those annoying spam text messages. Well, hopefully. The Federal Communications Commission is cracking down on spammy texts with new rules for telecom companies. The FCC says it's seen a surge of consumer complaints in recent years tied to unwanted robotexts. New rules adopted Thursday require phone providers to block text messages from suspicious sources, including phone numbers that appear to be invalid, unallocated, or unused. Carriers will also have to block texts coming from numbers that have never sent text messages. The move mirrors a similar effort to shut down illegal robocalls in the U.S., which has led to at least one phone provider being cut off entirely from the U.S. telephone network. In addition, the FCC is considering additional regulations that could, among other things, apply do not call registry protections to text messages for the very first time. 
Taiwanese computer maker Asus is using artificial intelligence to automate and streamline work at its first AI-enabled smart factory. Experts say AI is ripe for automating an array of factory functions. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Automated machines are churning out computer motherboards at this factory on the outskirts of New Taipei City. Taiwanese computer maker Asus recently applied AI to the smart factory's operations. Bosses say they're already seeing the benefits. We can collect a large amount of data through sensors technology and our factory's layout. By analyzing these data, we're able to know what situation occurred, what actually happened. We translate these data into a graphic. This is our AI factory's first step. Once we know what situation occurred, we can further analyze the reasons that triggered it, and then we can predict. The system is a combination of AI technology and automated robots. Here at this new factory, machines rapidly weld small microchips on the production line. They're busy assembling motherboards of various sizes. Some are for personal computers. Others are manufactured for more specific uses, such as gaming. Chong says AI can also help the company adapt to varying demands. We can tell that motherboards have become more complex and the sizes vary a lot. So our factories need to adapt themselves to meet the needs of this complexity and variety of products. Then AI comes in to help and increase efficiency. On the other hand, if product quality were controlled by humans, it would require a learning curve for the employee. Eric Huang is vice president at Synergy's Intelligent Systems. He also works as a consultant at the Artificial Intelligence Foundation. He says AI is ripe for automating an array of factory functions. We can see that a factory uses lots of AI applications on the first level, which means the parts used in production and manufacturing. But in the future, there's an even bigger chance that AI will provide an intelligent function for the factory, perceiving external needs and enhancing its own functions. This is how AI could be applied in other industries. ASUS is present in around 75 global markets. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Another drug maker is cutting the price of insulin. Yesterday, Sanofi announced it's dropping the price of Lantus by 78%. Lantus is the company's most widely prescribed insulin in the U.S. The company also says it's setting a $35 a month cap for patients with private insurance. Sanofi is also cutting the list price of its short-acting Apidra insulin by 70%. The move follows similar ones by Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk this month. The price change is effective January 1st. Hurricane Ian's impact is still being felt in Cuba's tobacco farms. The aftermath left many wondering if the country's tobacco industry would ever recover. The return of Havana's Festival del Habano last week inspired hope for the nation's tobacco trade. NTD Sandra Thomas has more on the natural disaster and the farmers who persevered. Hurricane Ian hit Cuba at the heart of its tobacco region of Pinar del Rio in September of 2022. The Category 3 storm battered plantations and drying houses. The hurricane wiped out some 10,000 tobacco houses, leaving more than 50 tons of spoiled leaves. The island's tobacco farmers and others in the industry were devastated. It was a huge disaster. There was nothing left here, not a single tobacco house standing. There were no warehouses, no trees, not even the covered harvested tobacco fields. The supporting wooden wires were all broken. The Habano Festival features some of the finest stogies in the world. The cigar auction brought in a staggering $11.9 million. 
The event also inspired hope for Cuba's tobacco producers. Some had feared that the aftermath of Hurricane Ian meant the end of the industry on the island. Well, at that time, I didn't believe it was possible to plant tobacco again. I always said that a miracle had to happen to be able to plant tobacco, and well, it happened. Tobacco company Habanos S.A. organized the event. The company reported sales of $545 million last year. Its primary markets include Europe and Asia. Cuba itself is an important market as well. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Now listen up Ted Lasso fans, how would you like to spend the night at AFC Richmond's favorite pub? The Crown and Anchor is going on Airbnb for three nights to celebrate season three on Apple TV+. May, the gritty pub owner of the show, will be the host. You and up to three friends can have a pint, play darts, and even try some of Ted's favorite biscuits with tea, or as Ted calls it, garbage water. The three nights available are October 23rd through the 25th. The listing goes live on Airbnb on March 21st. The price will be £112 or about $136. Transportation is not included. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Maki. Follow me on Twitter if you're there. If you have any news tips or feedback of the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you on Monday.